Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. Matthew 5, 27. As we continue our study of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Christ says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Our society is one that has little respect for marital fidelity. In fact, they seem to encourage adultery. If we were to believe television programming, if we were to believe what popular magazines and advice columns report, uh, we would believe that everybody is cheating on their spouse. Dr. Joyce Brothers, for example, has claimed that 50% of married women in the United States are involved in an adulterous relationship, 50%. And there are similar statistics that are reported in major media even today. We need to do a little fact check on that. And what we'll find is that things aren't nearly so bad. Tom Smith of the National Opinion Research Center, the University of Chicago, recently argued that these statistics are grossly exaggerated. He said, representative scientific surveys indicate that extramarital relations are less prevalent than pop and pseudoscientific accounts contend. The best estimates are that three to four percent of currently married people have a sexual partner besides their spouse in a given year, and only about 15 to 17 percent of ever married people have had a sexual partner other than their spouse while they were married. Now, why in the world would our culture so distort the facts to try to convince us that everybody is cheating on their husband or wife? I believe it is a clear effort to normalize sexual sin. In some cases, it's a, motivated by a desire to justify their own sin. And in order to justify their own sin, it helps if they think everybody's doing it. And the more they can convince others that everybody's doing it, then obviously the more will do it. Now, the good news is that not nearly as many people are committing adultery as the popular accounts contend, but the bad news is that infidelity is on the rise. Scientific polls indicate that only 8% of those who are 70 years old or older ever committed adultery. But 21% of those who are aged 40 to 49 admit to having committed adultery. If you do the math, it's more than double in just a single generation, or close to triple in a single generation. The reality is this debate about how many people are cheating should be irrelevant for deciding how believers should behave. Because everybody's doing it is never a rationale in the Christian faith for engaging in a particular conduct. What matters for us is the teaching 
of the Lord Jesus and of the Holy Scripture. After all, he says in the Great Commission that new disciples are to be taught to obey everything he commanded. And so what matters for us as we define our sexual immorality is the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of the Lord Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. What everybody else is doing is irrelevant. Because if we are called to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we are certainly called to have a righteousness that exceeds that of our American neighbors in a decadent culture. If we are called to be salt and light, purifying agents in a corrupt and sinful world, we must follow the sexual ethics of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are several truths that I want us to unpack in this passage today, but the first is the reminder that Jesus respects the authority of the Old Testament and he does not contradict its teaching. And there are many scholars who see this section of the Sermon on the Mount, the so-called antitheses, as places in which Jesus teaches something antithetical that is contradictory to the Old Testament law. He simply never does. We can reject this view for three reasons. First of all, the Lord Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Second, if Jesus' teaching were truly antithetical to the Old Testament law, we would expect him to say, you have heard that it was said to the ancients, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, commit adultery. Christ obviously does not teach that. But then third, when Christ says, you have heard it was said, it was said is a grammatical form known as the divine passive. And it's a reverent way of saying, this is what God proclaimed. In other words, the Lord Jesus recognizes the divine authority of the second commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This little phrase, it was said, is equivalent to the longer phrase that we see repeatedly in the Gospel of Matthew. This was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is reminiscent of Matthew 15, 4, in which the Lord Jesus quotes the words of the Old Testament law. But he doesn't say, Moses said. He says, God said. The Lord Jesus fully affirms the divine authority of the Old Testament, including the seventh commandment. Thus, this idea that this is an antithesis to Old Testament teaching is patently false. Second, the Lord Jesus refuses to compromise the standards of righteousness in the Old Testament. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament. He's challenging the interpretation of the Old Testament by many of the rabbis of his day. When he says, you have heard, it was said, he's reminding his readers that most of them didn't have their own private personal scrolls of the Old Testament. All they knew about what the Old Testament taught was what the rabbis had relayed to them in their synagogue teaching. And sadly, the rabbis had distorted the sexual ethic of the Old Testament. It is clear that most of the rabbis who were contemporary with the Lord Jesus interpreted the seventh commandment permissively. By defining adultery as a sexual act with the wife of one's neighbor, based on Deuteronomy 22:22. And based on the specifics of the text in Deuteronomy, they said, number one, it's only adultery if you're cheating with someone who is the wife of another. 
And so the loophole was, if you're having a relationship with a single woman, even though you're personally married, it's not adultery in the rabbinic view. Others would point out, well, but it says the wife of your neighbor. They would argue your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. Therefore, it's permissible to have a sexual relationship even though you are married with the wife of a Gentile man. There were other rabbis who asked the question is, and, and how far is too far when it comes to the issue of adultery? How far can we go before we break the seventh commandment? And I cannot be explicit here, but just let me say it was shockingly far. They were permissive, they were finding loopholes in the Old Testament sexual ethics so that they could justify and excuse what God clearly defined as sin. But the Lord Jesus refuses to do that. He interprets the Old Testament literally with great sensitivity to its original context and the intention of his father when he gave the commandment. And he makes it clear that it's not just the actual act of adultery that God intended to forbid, but all of the steps that lead up to the adulterous act. Now, we can't be too hard on the rabbis for trying to find loopholes in the law to justify their sin, twisting, distorting the Old Testament. When the reality is many people around us, some even in our churches, do the very same thing today. Several years ago, a very close pastor friend confronted a colleague of mine who was an ordained minister who taught at the Christian college where I was on faculty because he was involved in an adulterous relationship. And this man tried to defend his behavior biblically. He said, but the scripture says, I came that you might have joy and your joy might be full. And he said, my wife does not make me happy, but this woman makes me happy. And Jesus wants me to be happy. I've heard other justifications for sexual sin. A few years ago, I was talking to a Baptist deacon about the issue of pornography, and he got defensive and he said, the problem with you Baptist preachers is that you don't appreciate the difference between pornography and art. And I said, and in your mind, what is the difference? And he went on to define pornography very, very narrowly as only involving children or involving people who were forced to make those videos or imaged. Anything else in his definition was not pornographic. He defined pornography so narrowly as to excuse and permit what the Bible clearly forbids. Jesus will not play those games and he will not have us play those games. He does not water down, dilute, or compromise the righteous standards of the Old Testament commandment. He does not agree with his rabbinic colleagues in looking for loopholes. He preaches the unadulterated truth about the sin of adultery. Third, Jesus commands his disciples to strive for absolute sexual purity. And his teaching here in a sense is reminiscent of what we saw about his teaching regarding murder. Remember, he argued that it's not just the act of murder, but it's the bitterness and the hate, the unresolved anger, the attitude that leads to murder that God intended to forbid. And even so now, he argues that it's not just the act of adultery that the seventh commandment prohibits, but the very attitude and demeanor and character that leads to the act. 
The Lord Jesus recognizes that his hearers will be familiar with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody in first century Judaism understood this, and they recognized that adultery was a serious sin. It actually carried with it the death penalty under the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 22, 22, Leviticus 20, verse 10. But Christ blows their minds when he interprets the seventh commandment in light of the tenth commandment. What does the tenth commandment say? It's the thou shalt not covet commandment. And if you remember, it says, among other things, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And on that basis, Christ argues rightly that the seventh commandment isn't just intended to prohibit the adulterous act, but the very attitude the very thought process that leads to the act, the very desire for the neighbor's wife. His point is that adultery begins with imagining the act and that even that imagination constitutes adultery of the heart. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice that Christ gives us a specific description of the adulterous, lustful look. First of all, according to the grammar of the Greek text, this is a lingering look. Christ uses here a present progressive participle, and the idea is everyone who keeps on looking or continues looking at a woman in order to stir his desire for her, his committed adultery in his heart. And here's my point. Christ isn't teaching that we need to always keep our eyes downcast never looking a woman in the eye out of fear that we might think, well, she's pretty, she's beautiful. That's not the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. It is not wrong to appreciate beauty or to admire someone's appearance. Although the Bible is clear that inner beauty matters far, far more than outer beauty. My mother helped me learn this lesson when I was a boy. We were driving home from uh, a reading hour at the library, <clears throat> and I just burst into tears. I mean, I was sobbing uncontrollably. Five years old, maybe six at the time, first grade year. My mama became alarmed and she said, Chuck, Chuck, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, Mama, I can't tell you. It's too terrible. And she kept coaxing me to tell her what was going on. And finally I said, Mama, you know that girl who read the story at story hour? I thought she was prettier than you are. And I burst into tears all over again. Because <laughs> in my mind, <clears throat> my mama was supposed to be the prettiest woman in the entire world, and it was wrong, 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 wrong to think anybody else might rival her. And my mama looked at me so kindly and sweetly, and she said, Chuck, there are a lot of people in the world who are more beautiful than I am, and it is not wrong for you to recognize that. Beauty is an act of our Creator, and it is something that He is to be praised for. It's fine for you to appreciate beauty and even think other people are more beautiful than I am. And she spoke to me so sweetly and kindly as I scanned her face. I said, Mama, it doesn't matter anyway. I decided you're a whole lot prettier than that old girl is anyway. 
I think my mama was right. It, it is not wrong to appreciate beauty as long as we recognize that true beauty is not just skin deep. Uh, true beauty comes from an inner godly character. Christ isn't talking about just appreciating beauty. He's talking about locking your eyes on a woman with a lustful gawking, a sensual stare. And this isn't even just some momentary glance that leads to some unwanted thought that you quickly turn off and move on. This is a lingering look that becomes more and more intense and intentionally fuels the imagination and stirs the passions. That becomes clear when Christ follows up this present progressive participle with a purpose clause. In the ESV, it's translated, looks at a woman with lustful intent. The Greek text says, looks at a woman for the purpose of stirring longing for her. In other words, this lustful gaze scans the woman in order to create a secret fantasy. It's not a glance that accidentally triggers something. It's a look whose very purpose is to arouse desire. Now, there are a number of things that are clearly prohibited by the Lord Jesus' teaching here, but we could single out two. One would be fantasizing, deliberately imagining some forbidden sexual encounter, and the other, obviously, would be pornography. Both are clearly condemned here. And we need to talk a bit about the pornography issue because it has become such a plague on modern society. Pornography is a booming business in the United States. Right now, the industry generates more receipts than Hollywood's domestic box office. You may have recently seen that Tom Cruise's next iteration of the Mission Impossible film cost over a billion dollars to produce. Well, that's nothing compared to the amount of money that's generated by pornography. Men, women, and children are falling prey to the allurements of this sin by the millions and marriages are being destroyed, families are being ruined, and lives, ministries, and careers are being ruined. One of the things that's so frightening to me about the sin of pornography is that it's not just something that goes on between a person and a computer screen. It is something that impacts the way those who look at it relate to other people and act toward other people. One scientific study found that 86% of rapists have regularly viewed pornography and 57% of rapists admit that in their crimes they were acting out scenes that they had viewed online. Frighteningly, the Attorney General's Commission on Pornography found that the largest consumers of pornography in the U.S. are teenage boys between the ages of 12 and 17. And this is impacting the way they view women and girls terribly. Uh, one survey found that 33% of high school boys think that it is okay to rape their date if she becomes intoxicated, and 40% of high school boys believe they have the right to rape a girl if they've been dating for at least six months. Pornography has had such a horrifying effect on our society, we've reached the point that it is frightening to think of our wives and daughters even being out on the street, going to the shopping center or going out for a night for their friends. Even walking around a university campus has become horrifying in light of the prevalence of pornography-related crimes. 
One of the reasons that pornography is so very, very dangerous is that it, like drug abuse, according to psychologists, operates according to the law of diminishing return. Just like a drug abuser gets some kind of hit with a particular dosage, but then has to up the dosage or has to go to uh, more and more dangerous forms of drugs to get the same effect. Even so, a person who begins the journey through the world of pornography will often start with something that might seem relatively harmless, something traditionally known as softcore pornography, but it doesn't take very long before that ceases to produce the same effect and to get the same hit of dopamine, they've got to look at something more and more risky, more and more perverted, until finally they are viewing images, they are imagining acts, and sometimes even carrying out acts that would have completely repulsed them only months before. When I was a teenager, I worked for two years as a farmhand uh, the farm was owned by a retired Baptist pastor. He'd been fired from his church because he wouldn't let the teenagers have a dance at the church. And uh, after his termination, he decided that he would just take the farm that his wife had inherited from his father-in-law and he would run that uh, for his retirement. A godly man that I loved and respected and learned so much from. And one of the things that he loved to quote was an old poem that said, sin is a monster with face so mean that to be hated but needs be seen. But when seen too oft, familiar with face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. He was right. That's the way sin works. It takes us just an inch at a time until finally we are miles in to horrifyingly wicked behavior and thought processes that we would never have dreamt were possible for us. So when Christ says, Everyone who looks at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying, don't wait until you're halfway there in this process for the red flags to wave and you recognize, stop. He said, in the process at its earliest stage, when the very thoughts begin to enter your mind. This passage also shows that Jesus defied double standards for sexual ethics. It's interesting here that Christ refers to every man who is looking at a woman with lustful intent. Why, why does he single out the man? Is it because only men wrestle with sensual desires? Well, obviously not. Is it because the teaching only applies to men and women are free to lust if they want to? Obviously not. I believe that Christ is singling out the men because he wants to undermine the double standard that could exist in a patriarchal society that held women to one standard and men to another. In the first century Jewish world, much like 21st century America, women were expected to be faithful to their husbands, but husbands were generally deemed free to sow their wild oats and play the field. Interpreters both ancient and modern have recognized that marital fidelity in the biblical world was generally expected of women, but not of men. Listen to the words of this German scholar as he interprets the adultery commandment. He says, quote, adultery is the violation of the marriage of another. Hence, a man is not under obligation to avoid all non-marital intercourse 
Unconditional fidelity is demanded only of the woman who in marriage becomes the property of her husband. Adultery is possible only if there is carnal intercourse between a married man and a married or betrothed Israelitess, according to the Old Testament law. Now, if we had time, we could work through many Old Testament passages to show that this interpretation is completely bogus. But obviously, there's some modern scholars who are interpreting the Old Testament the same way some of the ancient rabbis did, very permissively and excusing what Scripture clearly condemns. The same double standard is alive and well in America today, isn't it? In 21st century America, there are some professing Christian fathers who will teach their sons how to have their way on a date while they at the same time vigilantly guard the virginity of their daughters. That is an unbiblical double standard. Nearly 90% of American boys have lost their virginity by the time they graduate from college, and yet 70% of American boys say when they marry, they want to marry a virgin. That is an unbiblical double standard. We expect now in our culture for a 40-year-old man to have his middle-aged crisis complete with his red sports car and a girlfriend his daughter's age, while we at the same time expect that middle-aged wife to be faithful to her vows. But that is an unbiblical double standard, and Jesus hits it right between the eyes. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that what is good for the goose is good for the gander, and that women should lower their sexual ethic to the one that many men have. What he is doing is saying that he will not tolerate this toxic view of masculinity that views infidelity as a male prerogative. He demands the same faithfulness to the marital covenant of the husband that he demands of the wife. He demands the same purity of males that he expects of females. This passage also shows us that Jesus teaches sexual purity is worth enormous sacrifice. Matthew 5, 29. Christ says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. These verses are startling. And I think that Christ intended for these to shock us. That's their intended effect. But in order for us to appreciate what Jesus is teaching here, several clarifications need to be made. First of all, Jesus does not want his followers to maim their bodies in the pursuit of sexual purity. Some people are still doing that, even in the modern era, and it wasn't that uncommon in the ancient world. <clears throat> An example of this is Origen, uh, the early church father from Alexandria, Egypt, to uh, later moved to Caesarea Maritima uh, there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and uh, helped lead the most famous Christian library of the ancient world. He was a prolific Christian scholar who wrote tons of commentaries. But Origen interpreted this passage and another as calling for the maiming of the body in the pursuit of purity. He decided that he would mortify his flesh and conquer his lust, first of all, by stripping off all of his clothes and rolling in a briar patch. When that didn't mortify his flesh, 
he decided that he would emasculate himself. That's right, he performed surgery on himself, thinking that it would enable him to conquer his lust. But to his grave disappointment, after these acts of mortification of the flesh, he still struggled with sinful sexual thoughts. He learned that lust is not caused by some particular organ of the body. It's the result of a depravity that runs much, much deeper than just hands or eyes or other organs. If Christ is not calling for the actual maiming of our body, then what in the world is this passage all about? Well, there are several proposals. Some have suggested that this is metaphorical and that the members of the body here are using Paul's imagery of the members of the church as the members of the body of Christ. And this is a passage about church discipline. I'm not convinced of that because when Christ speaks of not just a member of the body, but the right hand and the right eye, we have every indication that he's talking about literal eyes and literal hands. And some think that this is just hyperbole. It's intentional exaggeration for making a point. Because the right hand and the right eye were the favored hand and favored eye. We see an example of this in Psalm 137.5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand wither. Even today, the right hand and eye are favored to a certain extent. Uh, think of the man who says to his wife, well, I'd give my right arm if I had a four-wheel drive pickup like my neighbor over there has or something to that effect. That's a better argument, but I don't think Christ is exaggerating here. I don't think that this is hyperbole. I think Christ literally means that if your hand or eye causes you to sin, the smartest thing to do is to be rid of it because it is better for the body to be dismembered than for us to spend eternity in hell which is where unrepented of sexual sin will lead a person. You're probably confused now and you're thinking, but I thought you said Christ isn't calling for us to actually make the body. That's true. The key is that this is what is known as a contrary to fact statement. Don't underestimate the importance of that little word, if. Christ doesn't say, since your eye or hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He says, if. But he expects his audience to know very, very well that it's not the hand or eye that causes us to sin sexually. It is something that runs much deeper. After all, what did Christ say? He says, he that looks at the woman in order to stir his desire for her has already committed adultery with her, huh? In his heart. Sexual sin is not an eye problem. It's not a hand problem. It's a heart problem. And since Christ has already made it clear that it's a heart problem, and as we'll see in a minute, he'll reiterate that later in Matthew chapter 15, he expects his audience to know that the sacrifice of hands and eyes won't result in sexual purity. But his point is, if it could, it doesn't, but if it could, that would be a wise sacrifice to make. When I was in first state training as a scout and then as a Red Cross lifeguard, we were trained in the use of a tourniquet. Tourniquet is that tight band that's applied to a limb when you've got uh, profuse bleeding from a major artery and nothing else will stop that life-threatening bleeding. 
But the principle that we were taught was you only apply a tourniquet if it's a choice between life or limb. Because if a tourniquet is on long enough, there will be permanent damage to the tissue of that limb, which may ultimately require amputation. You only apply a tourniquet, according to the old experts at least, when there's a choice between life or limb. But a tourniquet will be applied when needed because everyone recognizes that the life is more important than the limb. That the sacrifice of a limb is a sensible one in order for a life to be spared. And what Christ is teaching here is we're not just talking about a choice between physical life and limb. If we were talking about a choice between eternal life and limb, then of course the eye or the hand should be sacrificed. The point that he's making is that unrepented of sexual sin has drastic consequences. He says it twice here clearly that the whole body will be thrown into hell. You say that's work salvation. Oh, oh no, it's not. You might say, well, the apostle Paul would disagree with Jesus teaching here. Oh, no, he wouldn't. First Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul clearly says the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to list some of the sins that characterize the wicked that make it certain that they will not inherit the kingdom. And he says, no sexually immoral person, no adulterer, no male who has sex with males will inherit the kingdom of God. That's clear. What Christ is saying is if you faced a choice between sacrificing even the most precious limbs of your body to escape the sexual sin that will lead you to hell, that would be a reasonable, even though it's a radical, that would be a reasonable sacrifice. Christ's point is, If you're really serious about the kingdom, if you're really serious about obedience to his commandments and the authority of God's moral teaching in the Old Testament, you'll be willing to make any sacrifice necessary in the pursuit of sexual purity. And my question for you today is what kind of sacrifices are you willing to make? Again, it's not going to be hands and eyes. These are heart issues, but we can make sacrifices that will aid us in the pursuit of sexual purity. Several years ago, I was counseling a college student who was overcome by what he called a sexual addiction. He had started viewing pornography as a child. And it had completely enslaved him. It had gotten so bad that he would view pornography anytime he had access to any device. It got so bad that he would be sitting at the computer looking at those images on his screen. His wife would come in, see that it was happening again, break down and sob. And his response to her would be a cold. If you don't like this, you can step out of the room. He said, I know I've got to conquer this. I so desperately want to conquer this. I'd do anything to break free. He said, I keep praying and praying for God to deliver me, but nothing changes. And I said, I want you to keep on praying. But the next time you get on your knees to pray for God's deliverance, I want you to crawl under your desk, unplug your internet cable, call the provider and cancel the subscription and cut off all access to this kind of content. He said, cut off my internet? I can't do that. How would I do online gaming with my friends? 
How would I keep up with the current news? And, and if I do that, I'm going to have to start going to the library to do the research for my college papers. I can't do that. And I said, wait just a second. Just a minute ago, you told me that you would do anything to break free from this sin that enslaves you. And now you're telling me canceling an internet subscription is too great a sacrifice? Plucking out our right eye and cutting off our right hand won't promote sexual purity. But unless we care enough about sexual purity that we would be willing to make such sacrifices if they were effective, we probably don't want sexual purity badly enough to ever have it. After all, Christ did not say to his disciples, blessed are those who have a mild interest in righteousness, for they will be filled. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who want righteousness more than their next bite of food, than their next sip of water. Those are the ones that the Father will graciously transform. And I'm afraid that if we are constantly losing the battle in our quest for sexual purity, that sometimes it's simply because we don't want it enough. And finally, Jesus taught that true sexual purity is a matter of the heart. If amputations and eye surgery won't conquer sexual sin, what will? A transformation of the heart. Christ has made it clear where the sin of adultery originates, and it is with lust that is in the heart. He's going to teach the same thing in Matthew 15, 19 through 20. He says, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of him that defiles him. And he goes on and lists sexual immorality, adultery, and a dozen other sins. And he said, all of these things issue from the heart. Matthew 19, 8 teaches that broken marriages are the result of a corrupt, hard heart. So conquering lust... And preserving godly marriages is ultimately a heart issue. What surgery can be performed on the heart to produce purity? Well, it's what Moses and the Apostle Paul refer to as the circumcision of the heart, the transformation of the heart by God's powerful grace. We've looked before at the New Covenant promises that says that when the Messiah comes and he initiates God's New Covenant with his people, it's not just going to grant sinners forgiveness of sin, it's going to transform them from the inside out. Jeremiah 31, God's law will be etched on our heart so that we are compelled from within to obey commandments like, thou shalt not commit adultery and you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. Ezekiel 36 says the same thing using different imagery. It says that God will give us a new heart. It takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And then says God will place his own spirit in our hearts. And the spirit will compel us from within to do what is right, holy, and good. To follow God's statutes, keep his ordinances, and practice them. And it's that new covenant promise that enables Christ to refer to his disciples in the Beatitudes with these words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In light of Jesus' teaching about how corrupt and depraved the fallen sinner's heart is, how can he refer to his disciples as the pure in heart? He can do that because the new covenant era has dawned. The new covenant has been enacted by Jesus' sacrificial death, and now sinners are not only being forgiven, they are being radically transformed. And there are so many people who think that they are entrapped in some sexual sin and they can never break free. 
And that is the devil's lie. We can be liberated from any sin that enslaves us by the transforming power of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul makes that very, very clear in that very first Corinthians 6 passage that I quoted a minute ago. Yes, he warns that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yes, he warns that that wickedness includes sexual immorality and adultery and perversion. But then he says to the Corinthians, and such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These are people whose lives had been radically transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And you can experience that transforming power today. I know that there are some people in this room who have tried to change again and again and again and failed every time and you've given up all hope of ever breaking free. You cannot change yourself, but Jesus Christ can change you. Jesus Christ can set you free from any sin that enslaves you. And you can have that transformed heart that empowers you to be faithful to the covenant of marriage before the covenant's made and after the covenant's made. Live a life of purity before marriage and after marriage. But you can't do that. Only Christ can do it for you. Trust Him. Now, there are some people today for whom this message stirs up some really haunting memories because you've committed grievous sexual sin in the past. In some cases, other people know it. In some cases, you might be the only one who knows. God knows. But you don't have to live under condemnation. John 8, a woman caught in the very act of adultery is brought to the Lord Jesus. And the Jewish leaders say, what shall we do? Moses says, we're to put such a woman to death. And Jesus stoops, writes with his finger in the dust. I think he's writing the Ten Commandments. It says Mordecai, he's reenacting what Yahweh did when God wrote the commandments with his own fingers in slabs of stone. That's a confession of his deity. But as all the bystanders reflected on that list of commandments, one by one they recognized, well, we may not have broken this one, but we've broken that one. And Christ then stands and says, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And beginning with the eldest all the way down to the youngest, one by one, the witnesses drop their stones and walk away, regarding themselves as unworthy to condemn. Then Jesus turns to the woman and says, Woman, where are your accusers? Then he adds, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus forgave this woman for her sexual sin in his great grace and mercy. And you can know that forgiveness now. Whatever sin it is that haunts you from your past is one of those that Jesus died for. Our Lord came into this world and lived the sinless perfect life we can't live so that he could go to the cross and bear the punishment for our sins and our place so that we can escape the punishment, we can escape the condemnation that we deserve from a holy God. And you can know his full and complete forgiveness. Every sin, including that one, that you've ever committed can be erased forever from the very memory of the omniscient God. So that one day in judgment, you are deemed 
to be holy, blameless, and free from accusation. Not because of who you are and what you have done, because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Accept his forgiveness now. But even as you accept his forgiveness, even as you trust the truth that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to separate your sin as far from you as the east is from the west, don't forget Jesus didn't just came, come to forgive, he came to change. Remember, neither do I condemn you, but then he adds, go and sin no more. If you're really my disciple, you will abandon this adulterous relationship, he's telling her. You will cut it off now, and you will not return to it. The point that I'm making is salvation requires not just repent, faith, but it, it requires repentance. Not just an flippant belief that Jesus is God, Savior, and King, but a submission of our lives to Him so that we want to live His way. And we are ready to make even radical sacrifices in order to live His way. What changes do you need to make in your life today to pursue sexual purity? I don't think it's complicated. Ask Jesus to transform us and be wise in knowing your weaknesses and limitations and refraining from anything that is risky. When I was a little boy in vacation Bible school, we learned a little song that said, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see. Why? Is it because God wants to keep us from enjoying some thrill that sin might bring? No. It says, be careful, little lies, what you see. Be careful, little lies, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little lies, what you see. What's the point? God loves us, and he wants what's best for us. He's not trying to prevent our happiness with his restrictions on our behavior. In love for us, he is telling us what is good and what will bring real joy and fulfillment in life. I hope that you will embrace today the good life, which is the one that God has ordained and his commandments prescribe. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Respond to the teaching of the Lord Jesus now. If this teaching condemns you, then seek his forgiveness. Trust him as God, Savior, and King. Thank him that his death on the cross was sufficient for the forgiveness of all our sin. Praise him for that marvelous grace of our loving Lord that erases our sin and our guilt. But if you need to break free from a sinful habit, then pray that Christ would grant you the transformation of heart needed to break free. And pray that he would give you the wisdom to make any sacrifices necessary in the pursuit of purity. Lord, we thank you for our Savior's clear and explicit teaching about something that matters so much. We have seen so much heartbreak from slavery to sin, so many families and lives devastated. Lord, we pray that that would never happen to us. We pray now, as our Savior taught us to pray, that you would not lead us into temptation, that you would deliver us from the evil one. We know that he is like a roaring lion, pacing to and fro, seeking another to devour. 
Lord, we pray that you would spare us, protect us, purify us, conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus, impart his own holy character to us. Grant us the pure heart that will not only protect us from the act of adultery, but every imagination that might lead to it. In Jesus' name, amen.